You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Good morning, everyone. My name is Benjamin. I'm one of the pastors here. Pick up your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 31 to 37. If you don't have a Bible, use the one in front of you. If you don't own one, take that one as our gift. You can walk out with it at the end of the service and no one will look at you. Actually, we'll, we'll be encouraged if you take it. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And today's sermon is called... Your word is your character. And just a side note, um, that we're going to be implementing from now on, about five to ten minutes after the service starts, we're going to lock those uh, two doors, just because we realize the world is what the world is. And as the world uh, continues to move away from Christ, we can expect it to continue to get worse. Um, And... We want to be uh, protecting our people, and so we're going to lock those doors. Don, uh, our head enforcer, is, will be watching those doors. So if you show up late, if you're like running five minutes behind, and you're like, oh, I'm going to be late. I better just turn around and go home. No, just come stand by the door, and when we see your friendly face, uh, he'll come down because he'll be watching, and he'll open the door for you. Um, and if something ever happened and somebody ever came in here to uh, hurt anyone in our congregation, uh, we will react to it, and we would expect the men to get up and to move towards uh, whatever the threat was, Um, and we would expect the women and children uh, to get down, um, and we will have people that would move uh, to protect um, if that ever needed. God forbid that ever did happen, but we just want to take precautions, so expect that to happen, but don't leave if you're late. We won't uh, condemn you. Maybe you remember, uh, if you grew up in uh, the 80s, when I grew up, we had these uh, things called Transformers. I had them when I was a kid. That's when they became popular. I used to watch the show. Um, And the cool thing about Transformers, I think they've still got them now, is is they they were these robots that would morph into some cool uh, plane or uh, train or car or army vehicle, right? And uh, what I've noticed, I looked at one, my son William had one uh, about 10 years ago, is they've gotten more and more complex, right? The transforming uh, isn't just like a couple of twitches and and you move it into whatever it is. It's like a lot of different integral steps to transform it into that new thing. And and we've been following along the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been hearing from Jesus uh, that a Christian isn't just somebody who says some things. Uh, a Christian isn't just somebody who does some things, Al- although he is those things. Uh, a Christian is uh, primarily a person who is being transformed. It's their character that is being transformed. Character is key. We've been seeing that in the kingdom of God, not in religion, and not in the world, but in the kingdom of God, character is Key. And out of that character transformation comes fruit, uh, fruit that Jesus talked about in those first 12 verses of chapter 5. 
uh, humility and a hunger for righteousness and, and mercy. These are the fruits of a transformed spirit when God manifests himself in a person so that that person manifests God to a broken and dark world. And you're going to start to see uh, at different levels, uh, at a different pace in Christians, as they've given themselves to this transforming God, as they've received forgiveness, you're going to start to see a, a religious person be transformed into a kingdom person. You're going to start to see a worldly person be transformed into a kingdom person. They're going to become salt and they're going to become light uh, in a corrupted and dark world, Jesus is telling us. And then Jesus uh, starts to say about how, how the, um, he starts to take the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, and he, he says, this is the real essence behind them. It's not just something you do and see how far to the edge you can skate before you go over the side. No, no it's, a, it's a transformation where the laws of God are written on the heart's of men and women. And first he talks about murder and he says it's not just murder that you commit with your hands. No, no murder starts in the words of the way you speak to people is where you actually start to murder them. And then he, he talks about adultery and it used to be, oh, how far can I get uh, without actually committing adultery? But Jesus tells us it's in your mind where adultery starts. That's where the kingdom man or woman kills the temptation. And then he carries on here in verse 31. Let's read it together. It is also said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whomever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, Don't take an oath at all, neither by heaven because it is God's throne or by earth because it is God's footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Let's take a minute and pray. God, again, we look at your words, which you said to uh, your disciples almost 2,000 years ago. We know that these are maybe hard things for us to understand, and they're, they're definitely counter to what our culture teaches and um, okays. But Lord, we don't want to be just religious people. We don't want to be worldly people. We want to be kingdom people. And so help us to understand what it is you were meaning, how it is we're supposed to live in this broken world, how it is we're supposed to live even when we've made mistakes in the past. Lord, we want to be honest and upright people, and I can admit that that's not always easy. And so help us, Jesus, and help me, a simple man, to convey your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, why does Jesus go from temptation and adultery uh, to the essence of marriage. 
and to divorce. Uh, he makes some pretty bold statements here, don't you think? Certainly not popular in our day. I remember when I first uh, was saved and I first read uh, these uh, things. I don't remember the exact experience, but I remember the, uh, the, the, the reality, right? And I was a single parent at the time, uh, raising two kids on myself. And what is Jesus saying? And why is he making such concrete statements about marriage and about divorce? It doesn't fit with our culture. And there's something inside of you that's even going to push back as a Christian living in the 21st century in the West and say, ah, these things, these are pretty strict. So why is Jesus making these statements about first divorce? Well, I've got two primary reasons I want us to focus on. Number one, it's this. And all the, the main points are in your bulletin and there's a place to make notes. It says, marriage is God's. It's God's. And it is the backbone of the family, the church, and of the nation. So let me touch on that first part. Marriage is God's. So we have to understand that he invented it. He created it. It's his. And when uh, he makes something, he means for it not to be changed. And so in our culture, uh, our culture and our government and, and Hollywood, they like to take marriage and they say, well, it's actually ours to determine what it is and define it and change the rules as we go. But marriage was created by God between a man and a woman and God. And marriage, even outside of faith, really isn't even marriage. It's something created by society. And so they can make their own little things and call it whatever they want, but it isn't marriage. It isn't marriage according to God's definition of marriage. Marriage is God's gift to humanity. It is for the protection and the mutual benefit of a man and a woman. It displays uh, his love for his church between a man and a woman. It is the protection for children, a nurturing place where they can raise up uh, children to know God. It is the backbone of the church and of a healthy nation. So it's God's first. And research has conclusively documented this. There isn't any arguing that when a family stays together, according to even secular research, life is generally, and I say generally, better for everyone. It's better for the man. It's better for the woman. It's better for the children. Poverty rates are lower. Depression rates are lower. Drug and alcohol addiction are lower. Suicide rates are lower. Generally, when a family stays together, life is better for that family. And God knows it. And so his desire is that men and women work through the challenges of marriage because it's hard for the benefit of each other. It's the backbone of the church, meaning a healthy families inside of a church, multiple healthy families allows the church to do and to focus on other things like on widows and orphans, on caring for those who are vulnerable, on sharing the gospel. But often, and the reality is in our Western churches, and and I'm not saying this, uh, that we, Rebecca and I, don't struggle through our marriage, because we do, we're honest, but we are so uh, focused on our marriages, and we have so much influence from the world that in churches, much of the time is taken addressing marriage problems. And not necessarily caring for the vulnerable, not necessarily sharing the gospel with a broken community, but a lot of the time, 
that the leaders spend on counseling and ministering is on marriage conflict because we're so influenced by the world. We're so driven by how we feel. We so have a view of marriage that's influenced by movies and books and, and culture, and we forget that it's God's. And so it's part of a healthy church. And, fam- and marriage, strong marriages, healthy families, are the backbone of a thriving society. A nation. You cannot have a healthy nation. You cannot have a healthy, uh, thriving nation, a prosperous nation without healthy families, without strong marriages. Interesting, when I was uh, researching this, for the first 520 years of the Roman Empire's uh, existence, so when they became the Roman Empire and they grew, uh, there was not a single recorded instance of divorce. And the Romans kept a pretty thorough history. And I'm sure there was some. We just don't have any record of one for the first 520 years when they did most of their expansion, when they grew the most, when they were their, we could call the healthiest that the Roman Empire ever was. They had a high esteem of marriage and the covenant between a man and a woman. And then, after the 520 years, we start to see divorce being something talked about more and more common. And as it declined and as the nation got close to when it collapsed, marriage or divorce became rampant throughout the society. And all sorts of other things that God would say is not as a no-no also came in. And then they imploded. And we can see that in our society. When divorce became easy, when divorce became about how I want and what I want, and, and people just started doing it, we can see our, our nation and a lot of the problems in our society started to really rear their heads. So that was number one point. It's God's and it's important. Number two is that the Jews were abusing it. Divorce, that is. And, and so a good Jew in that time, when Jesus was talking to them, he's addressing the disciples, uh, a good Jew would know divorce is wrong. They would know from the Old Testament that God hates divorce, and it's not something that God desires for any Jew. But the problem was, is they were twisting, the leaders, were twisting things out of context. And women had no rights, right, as Women still in much of the world, most of the world, have no rights. They were a possession. They were a thing. And so as a possession or a thing, they were being thrown away and abused. And God wants to protect women because they're equal in value to men. And so Jesus uh, knows that their understanding of divorce and marriage uh, primarily comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I'll just paraphrase what the chapter um, is teaching. Essentially, it's saying when a man finds, and, and the, it would be true in our day, uh, when a man finds that a woman uh, is unclean, he can give her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his home. And she's to go back to her father. And But... If he then gets married to somebody else, he can't divorce her and then go back to that woman. And this kind of sums up what Deuteronomy chapter 24 is teaching. Uh, But all the conflict was around this word uncleanness, where we get the word pornea from. You know that word. It means sex outside of the context of marriage. Illicit sex. And so the rabbis were twisting it. And teaching the people falsely. Uh, there were some more conservative rabbis, uh, like 
uh, Rabbi Shammai. Shammai. Uh, he was very conservative. He said that uh, he wrote that, and we have these teachings from before Christ. A man finding a woman unclean means she has been uh, willfully engaged in sexual activity outside of the marriage. That is what makes her immoral, and that is the just ground for divorce. But then there was another rabbi, very popular rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. And he widened the definition as lots of church leaders like to twist things to fit the context or the desires of their heart. And he says, um, if a wife who's preparing her husband's food puts too much spice on the food or oversalts the food, technically she has been made unclean by messing up the dinner. I kid you not. This is what he was teaching. This is what Jews were believing. He goes on and says, if a woman is out in public and her head is uncovered, she is now unclean and ready for divorce. If she speaks to a man publicly, that is not her husband. That is grounds for divorce. If she was a brawling woman, grounds for divorce. If she speaks ill of her husband's parents, she is now unclean. None of, none of you ladies have ever spoken wrong about your parents-in-law, have you? This is what he was teaching. And so a lot of the Jews are like, well, this rabbi's got a high view of marriage and ah, she may not be perfect, but, but I kind of like what this rabbi's teaching. Oh, she messed up the dinner last week. Yeah, yeah, she did. Actually, two years ago she did that. So she's grounds for divorce. And so they were getting rid of their wives because wives had no rights in that society for things that Jesus knew were wrong, that were not what God had Said. There's another guy, uh, Rabbi Akavia, and he says, get this, he took it even further, and he was alive during the time of Jesus. If a man finds another woman more attractive than his wife, his wife has been found unclean because she didn't keep herself looking as beautiful as she was when he first married her. Grounds for divorce. And so the society is completely corrupt. And Jesus knows this, and he's addressing this. Because he knows the men are going to give in to their temptations and their desires is not the truth of God. And so he's saying, listen, men, you got to stop this nonsense. Remember, he's just spoken about adultery, that adultery starts in the heart. What's he telling the men who are listening and the women who are listening? Hey, listen, you've all most likely committed adultery in your minds. You've all been tempted. And there's only really only just ground uh, if your wife or your husband is actually going out and committing adultery willfully. But there's even room for mercy and forgiveness there. He says, listen, you're polluting my land. You're, You're teaching all sorts of corrupt things. Get these thoughts out of your head and commit to marriage the way I have defined it. Marriage is hard, right, isn't it? If you've been married, you would know. Most likely, you've gone through some hard times. Maybe there's a few of you that have just coasted through, but let's be honest, marriage is challenging. When I meet with uh, marriages for premarital training, I'm getting better than I used to be. I put people through the ringer more than I used to. And I'll I'll sit with a, a couple if they actually come to me for premarriage counseling and, and I'll, I'll say, listen, marriage, the first year, the first five years, it's going to be hard. 
It's going to be, it can be great. It can be the most wonderful relationship, human relationship you can have in the world. But it's also going to be hard. And I guarantee, I tell them, by year five, you're going to have thought about multiple times about how you could divorce this person. And then come year 20, 25, you're going to be thinking of it again. And so we talk about it. Year one often is the hardest. Why? Because it's the year of adjustment. You've gone from a single person and a single person doing what you want to do with your schedule, running things according to your way, and now, bam, all of a sudden, you're one flesh. And, whoa, who is this person? And I've got to change my life and meet them halfway in the middle. Oh, man, and they snore and they stink and they, and they oh, whoa, man, this is not the way it was when we'd get together dating, right? Year one is the adjustment year. It's hard. Years two to five, that's by, by then half of marriages fail. That's the reality year. That's when the honeymoon uh, years, that's when the honeymoon is over. And you're like, whoa, this person is not who I thought they were. They kept some things hidden. And, and it's this, whoa, I, I'm committed to this person forever? Right? And, and it's the reality. And, and unless a person is committed to the covenant, to changing, to looking at their faults, it can really be easy to focus on your spouse's faults. But if you make it past there, you've got a pretty good chance you're going to make it all the way. But there's this other year, year 20 to 25, when marriages, uh, all of a sudden, divorces jump. Why is that? Well, let's think about it. Because year 20, 25 is usually when the kids are growing up, right? And they're moving out of the house. And because we live in North America and we make our children little idols, a lot of the times when we're not dealing with year, years 1 to 5 and we're like, oh, I, I can't deal with them. I'll just immerse myself in my children. We build our marriages around our children and then our children grow up and move out and we don't really have a marriage. The marriage has become stale. The fire has gone out so people are more likely to get divorced. So I try and warn couples, hey, if you're committing to this, understand that it's going to take work. It's going to take work. It's going to take humility. It's going to take sacrifice. There are so many times when I want to blame my wife and I have to smack myself and say, look in the mirror, Emery. Look at your own stuff. I'm part of the problem. And Jesus and the New Testament give really three only reasons for divorce. One is adultery, other is death, you're free to remarry, and the third is abandonment. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse fifteen. We talked about this back in our series in Ephesians. And and really what it teaches, if you look at that in context, is that is that if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave you, you are free from that person. And what I see in the Bible is that if you leave your spouse and they haven't committed adultery, but you're just leaving them because you don't get along, really, you're demonstrating by your character that you're not really a Christ follower, that you're not really following Christ, who sacrifices, who gives himself, who submits to the Father's will. And so, essentially, it's like that person isn't even a Christian. They may even say they are, but they really aren't. Now, you might say, well, what about abuse? Because I know this, this is one of the church's greatest shames, as they ignore the abuse that has gone on. And so here's what I see. Here's how we would handle different types of abuse. 
And there's four types that we can commonly see. A man physically abusing his wife. Well, there would be immediate separation. We would separate them for the safety of the woman and if there's children involved. And then I would like to deal with it the way they used to deal with it. That's where I say, okay, let's go outside. You like to hurt your wife. Let's go. That's the way they used to deal with it in towns. Like in, in western towns 100 years ago, if the, if the men heard uh, when this thing called chivalry existed and, and, and men were gentlemen, if they heard that a man was beating up on his wife, they'd go tune that guy up. Right? They'd deal with him. And maybe I, we can't do that anymore, but that's the way I'd like to deal with it. But that's the one way we see. But then we see sometimes men mentally abuse Women. And that's another area where the church has kind of fallen asleep. And mental abuse is a lot harder to ID because usually it's one who's a little bit better and smarter. I, sorry, I'm going to say smarter than the other and, and they can manipulate things and they can talk their way out of it and, it and it's a lot of it is hidden. And so the signs are hard to see. But if you look for the signs, I had a counselor send me a list of things to look for um, when mental abuse is going on. Uh, You can target it, and you can see that the one person uh, is very afraid and and may look good on the outside, but there's a lot of fear driven. But then it's reversed in the Western society as well. We have women beating their husbands, abusing their husbands. They hit them, they kick them, they spit on them, they bite them. Right? And, and it's one way. And this only happens in the West. It only happens in the West. Why? Because physically, men are usually stronger. And in other countries, they'd simply kill the woman if she did that. There's no space for it in other countries. But in the West, we see this twisting where some women are abusing their husbands. And there's really only two reasons why a woman would do this. One, she's evil just like the man who abuses his wife, or two, she's mentally unstable, right? And we have to understand that there are some people who are evil who would claim to be Christians, and there are some people who are mentally unstable who would claim to be Christians. But then there's the fourth. There's women who mentally abuse their husbands. This I've been seeing increasing rapidly. It's where the woman, and and I admit and we have to admit this, men, that a lot of the times women are smarter than us men. Come on, we can, we can admit it. We're stronger, we're a lot of the times faster, but a lot of the times our wives are smarter than us. Right? And so sometimes women uh, will manipulate their husbands, play games with them, keep them trapped in a prison of condemnation and, and, and them feeling like a demoralized piece of garbage. I, I remember, I've run into this a number of times. Uh, this one couple was trying to intervene with, but she was smart and not stable, and she could twist things around. And, and I tried to engage the, the act, the issue, um, when I was counseling uh, with a woman alongside of me, and, and she would just twist it around and make it look good and make it sound good and justify it, and I'd be like, my head's spinning. How, is, how am I getting outsmarted by this person, right? But you have to watch it. It's, it's not as easy to identify as physical abuse, but it does happen. So what do we do? We separate them uh, if there's abuse going on. We look for humility in the person who's doing the abuse. Uh, a humility and an acceptance of their responsibility in this. Then accountability, that they are being accountable to men or to women. And ladies, I can't 
deal with women who are abusing their husbands. It's dangerous ground because a woman can accuse me of anything nowadays. That's where we need women to stand up and to step forward and say, hey, I see you treating your husband like this. I see the way you talk to him. You can't do this. And women in the church to come around and come alongside and hold other women accountable and then show and demonstrate that they've changed, that they've come under the, the authority of God's word and come under the accountability of elders or counselors. But if they don't do any of those things, then essentially they're demonstrating they're not a believer of Christ. They're not a follower of Jesus Christ because a follower of Jesus Christ humbles themselves. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit my kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, right? These are the characteristics of a Christ follower. One more thing I just want to address. You say, what if I'm divorced? And there's people in here who have been divorced. What do I do now? I'm divorced and I'm remarried. Well, then Christ would say, and I would encourage you to give this marriage everything you've got. You can't change the past, but you can change the present. You can determine to do things differently. And so don't marry a non-believer. Don't do missionary marriage. But if you do, commit to it. If you're married, commit to that person through the ups and the downs, through the hard times and the good times. Let your vows sometimes to Christ, let your uh, vow to them be the thing that keeps you together. You may not feel like it, but if you honor God, he will honor you. He will help you through service, through submission, through mutual love. Two Christians... Doing these things often will make a marriage great. One Christian doing these things and another not, it's still going to be a better marriage than two people not. And so give it everything you've got. Make this one the best that you can. And when you feel like giving up, cling to Christ. This is what he is getting at. Listen, you made this this marriage. You got into this marriage, Jesus is essentially saying, And unless that person is out cheating on you, you give it all you got. Your word demonstrates your faith in me. And he goes on in verse 33. says, again, you've heard it said to your ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Don't miss, Jesus says this throughout the sermon. Again, I say to you, again, I say to you. He's building upon his message, right? It's, it's not a bunch of different random thoughts. Jesus' sermon is building upon itself. It's many, many layers that he's trying to talk to the people about. It's about here, transformation inside. Again, I say to you, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you say. It's about what's happening in here and here. And human nature is this, that we are, in our fallen state, dishonest. I think if you look in your mind and in your heart, you could say the same. We are, in our fallen states, naturally drawn towards being dishonest. Honesty is not the norm in our society, and even in our own lives. We naturally move towards being dishonest. We call them white lies, right? Or we call them a little discrepancy in my life, right? But it is dishonesty. That's why we have things called contracts in our society. If I walk into the dealership over there and I say, hey, I like that SUV, uh, 
give it to me and I'll promise to pay you back later. Throw me the keys. He's going to not throw me the keys, right? Why is that? Because he's going off of the notion that humans are naturally dishonest and that he can't trust me even though I've told him I will pay him back, right? So this is a well-known reality in our society. And so we have these things called contracts and oaths. Right, And we sign the contract to buy the vehicle, stating that if we don't pay it back, they can come and take it back and then go after our wages. And so it was the same in that century. People were making oaths, and, and there was different kind of oaths. There was uh, oaths uh, based off your integrity, and there was oaths based off of your faith in God. And I'll be honest with you. I'll be totally honest with you, so you don't have to feel like you're the only one that's not perfect. It is more natural for me to lie than it is to be honest. This has been a struggle from childhood. I remember when I was a child, I just fell into lying very easily. And that was who I was as a teenager. And that was who I was as a young man. It became a part of my character. I just lied because it was easy. Not because I wanted to be evil, because it was easy. It was just easier to lie. Well, why is that? Why do we find it easier to tell white lies. Well, I'll give you three reasons. One, because we get what we want. That's the reason we often like to get what we want. We just had a, an election, right? And as we watched um, these four leaders up front make a bunch of promises, we knew in the back of our minds, except for a few people that are still delusional, that most likely they're lying. That most likely they're not planning to follow through on all these promises that they've made. Why? Because it's just normal to make a bunch of promises and then do different things, right? And, and so why do they do it? To get what they want. What do they want? Your vote. Because they want the power and the pension and the paycheck, right? And so they tell lies to get what they want because it's easier than to say the hard truth. The hard truth would be this country is in a heap load of trouble. And unless we make drastic changes, there are going to be some big time problems. But that's hard, right? And you need a person of conviction and integrity to actually do that. Abraham Lincoln, one of my heroes, not a perfect man, but a man of conviction. He was a man of faith. He wanted, he desired to tell the truth. He desired to follow through and do the right thing. That is not something we find very often in leadership. It's a conviction. So people lie to get what they want. People lie so others won't get mad at them. Isn't that true? You ever lied to your spouse? You ever lied to your parents? Why? So they wouldn't get mad at you. And that's why accountability only works with an accountability partner if you're willing to be honest. Right? Don't get an accountability partner if you're not willing to be honest with them. But if a person is willing to be honest, and this is what we try and do with our kids, um, Rebecca and I, is we try and tell them, listen, if... Even if you lie, even if you do something wrong, if you come to us or if we question you and you tell us that you've lied or done something wrong right away and we don't have to drag it out of you, your punishment will be much less. You will receive mercy if you admit your fault. And isn't that the way God treats us? 1 John chapter chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all our iniquity. Right? God wants for us to be a people that when we sin, we admit it. 
instead of lying and keeping the lie going so that we don't feel the consequences. In the early church, in the book of Acts, there was this couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And, and what they did is they, they sold a bunch of their land so that they'd look good, but then they lied about where the pro, part of the proceeds were going in front of everyone to look good. And God knew in their heart, he saw in their heart, and he, and he says through Peter, they're lying. And Peter calls them out. And then, oh, no, 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 I didn't lie. Then he calls them out again. Oh, no, 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 no. And then God deals with them very strongly. He kills them. To make a point. The point is this, that the kingdom of God is built off people who desire to do right and who will admit when they do wrong. I think that's why God showed David mercy when David committed adultery and murder and the the prophet Nathan came to him and said, you're the man that has murdered. You're the man that has done evil. Saul, the king before David, would have just killed Nathan. But instead, David doesn't say anything except... I am the man, and against God and God alone, I have sinned. And because of that, he found mercy. So you want to create an atmosphere where your kids will be honest? Show them mercy when they admit it. So we lie because to get what we want, we lie so people won't get mad at us. And number three, uh, we lie so people will like us. And I think this is probably the one that most of us participate in in our social media accounts. We, most people's social media accounts, a lot of people's social media is built off lies and illusions to get people to like them, to get people to accept them, right? And so we portray and we say things that paints us in a certain picture and everyone looks at us and, oh, wow, isn't that wonderful who they are and look at their life. But so much of it is just an illusion. It's just a lie, that's the way it often is in churches, right? Um, a band, uh, Casting Crowns, has this song called Stained Glass Masquerade. And it portrays it well, how we, we so start to make our lives look like a stained glass and portray to people this perfect person that we are. How are you doing? Oh, I'm wonderful. When inside, we're not. We're broken. And so we lie, so people will like us. But then Jesus goes on and says, um, verse 34, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Notice he doesn't, the Bible doesn't say take oaths. That's a man-made thing. The Old Testament says in a few places, uh, if you make an oath, uh, in Numbers and, or Leviticus and Numbers, if you make an oath, you better follow through with it. But he doesn't say go make oaths. That's not the message of God. Jesus, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair, white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. You remember when you were a kid, and you're like making promises, and you're like, and you don't believe the kid. Cross your heart. Cross my heart. And hope to die? I hope to die. Put a needle in your eyes. Put a needle in my eyes. Right? It's this big long, and it gets longer and longer and longer the more that kid lies. Right? And, and right? What is that? That's an oath. Right? Because you're trying to get them to just, you want to believe that they're telling the truth. And so we make lies to try and convince, or we make oaths to try and convince people 
that we are telling the truth. Have you ever had somebody and you like don't believe what they're saying? They're like, swear to God. I swear to God, right? Why is that? What are they saying? Because their integrity isn't good enough, so they have to swear uh, on God. I don't, I, that's why I look at our culture and we still put our hands on our Bible in the courtroom. Well, what's a secular person care if they put their hand on a Bible and lie? They don't care, right? Because it's just a thing that they do. But Jesus is saying, listen, don't swear by, by God. Don't swear by uh, heaven. Don't swear by uh, the city of Jerusalem. Don't, don't even swear by the hairs on your own head. Because I own everything and I'm in everything. And when you say a yes or a yes or a no or a no, I know if you're telling the truth. And it speaks to your integrity. And so let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Meaning... Be a person whose integrity and character is known. That when you say yes to something, everyone's like, well, I know they'll follow through with it. And if you say no to something, they know, oh, I know that this is the truth. Because they've demonstrated this time upon time. Trust takes a while to build trust in someone, right? In relationships. But how do you build that trust? By being a person who means what they say. Eight years ago, I told my wife that I would be her husband in richer and in poor, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times. And I plan to do everything I can to follow through with that. Doesn't mean I haven't screwed up a thousand times over. Doesn't mean that I'm easy to live with. But I desire to do it. And so I will do it and look to improve on it. And so when your yes means yes, and make sure it means that. So when your friend asks you, have you put up proper guards in your life to keep you from temptation on your internet, your phone? Me, if you say yes, mean it. If you say no, mean it. If your wife asks you, do, you look good? do I look good in this outfit? Make sure your yes means yes and your no means no. And ladies, be ready for a yes or a no. Don't get all offended if they say no, because then you don't want the truth. If your husband asks you, ladies, is there something I can, something wrong? Don't say, no, there isn't. Just tell them the truth. They're not mind readers. And a lot of the times, women think we, we, we read minds, but we don't. God hasn't given us that ability. Young people, if your parent asks you, can you be home by 10 o'clock? Make sure your yes means yes or your no means no. If your boss asks you, can you do this job by this certain amount of time? And you know you really can't, but you don't want them to be mad at you, so you say you can, and then you'll come up with an excuse later. Just say no, I can't, or just say yes, I can. The point is, is that people of the kingdom are people who desire to be honest, who are honest even when it's hard to be honest. Let's pray. God... I know most of the people in here, and I know that they desire to follow you. And Lord, I'm sure that they can admit, as I can admit, that we're not always honest. That sometimes we tell white lies, and sometimes we create perceptions about ourselves that aren't true. God, would you convict us of that? Would you... Give us a desire to be people of integrity, that even if the world doesn't see what we're doing, that you would look down from heaven and say, I see that man or woman, and I see how they walk in integrity. 
And God, if there's a person in here who can say, I'm not really a Christ follower, would they see, Lord, I pray that they would see that your kingdom is the best kingdom to be in, a place of honesty and trust and protection, and that they would simply confess that they are a sinner in need of salvation, that they need to be saved by you, and that and I know that you will save them, and that they would commit to you to follow you until that they die. Lord, would you help us do this in Jesus' name, by your power, for your glory, for this broken world, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.